Thanks for tuning in to the Believer's Church of Johnson City Podcast. Our mission is to help broken people become devoted followers of Jesus. If you'd like to visit us in person, we are located at 6110 Kingsport Highway here in beautiful Johnson City, Tennessee. You can become a giving partner by visiting us at believerschurchjc.com. We love you, we are praying for you, and we hope you enjoy today's message. I appreciate that. And, and you know, the worship this morning was wonderful. That last song, I just got to tell you, that last song was incredible. And, and it's going to sound really familiar as I go through my message because a bunch of the things I'm going to say were in that song. And, and that's just the way God works. We didn't plan, we didn't plan that. God did, Amen. you know, and, and, and I'm just so excited about what God is doing in, our, in this place and in our midst, and, and, um, and I, you know, it's, it's a lot of pressure um, because it's like, I don't want to get up there and ruin what God is t- <laughs> doing. So please be praying for me that I will be a vessel and that God would just speak through me. And it would, uh, it, I have nothing to offer, but God has everything um, to offer. So Pastor Matt is serving in the children's ministry this morning. He does that about once a quarter. And again, he likes to set an example for that, and he likes to, to get to know the, those kids. We don't do child care. We do children's ministry. And he's in there ministering to the kids, and, and so I get the opportunity uh, to share with you this morning. So I want to start out with a question. What do you think of when you hear the word intimacy? Some of you are smiling some of you look uncomfortable. It's like he's going there in church. Um, for some people, the word is sad because it brings uh, to mind a distant memory, something that they once had and no longer have. Um, Webster defines intimacy as the state of being intimate. That's real helpful, huh? Uh, <laughs> I love those definitions that don't really tell us anything. So let's look at what intimate means. All right, this is one of those words that our culture has kind of twisted and made into something that is not what it actually is. Uh, it's made it into something that, that makes people uncomfortable. But being intimate, is it, that's very private, closely personal, marked by a warm friendship developed through long association. That's what the word intimate means. And so we could define intimacy as a very close, familiar, and deeply personal relationship with someone formed over a long period of time. It's important to understand that intimacy isn't something you just get. Intimacy is something you pursue. With that in mind, we're in a three-week series entitled A New Thing. We've been talking about the ingredients for an outpouring or an awakening of a true revival movement of God. But God does not force himself on us. Now, it's important to understand we can't manufacture such a movement. We can't control that. We can't make it happen. It is a movement of God. But God doesn't force himself on us. God wants us to clear the way. He wants us to seek that and to pursue that. He wants to bring it about, but he wants us to want it too. 
All right? So we've been looking at the, the things that we can do to clear the way for such a movement. In week one, we talked about a commitment to cleansing and how we have to be willing to put down the old things. And, and those old things might be sins that we've struggled with for a long time. It might be distractions, things that are keeping us from pursuing God. It might even be good things that are keeping us from great things. But we have to be willing to put that down. In week two, we talked about a commitment to expectation. And we have to understand that God is able to do so much more than what we are used to. We've become anemic to the things of God. And we need that expectation that we see God work. Jesus told his disciples, these miracles I've done, these things I've done, you're going to do greater things. You know, and where is the expectation for that? That was last week. Uh, <laughs> this week, we're going to get a third commitment. And I believe it's a critical commitment to seeing God move. And that's the commitment to intimacy with God. That close, familiar, and deeply personal relationship with the God of the universe. Let's pray. Lord... I thank you so much. I thank you, Lord, that you love us. Lord, you don't just want us as your, your minions. You don't want us as just robots that do whatever you say and, and there's no affection, there's no, no relationship. Lord, you want us. You want a relationship with us. You want that intimate closeness with us and you want us to experience that with you. Help us, Lord. Help us to see how to do that to see what that looks like and to, to, to truly pursue intimacy with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I started preparing for this message, I was reminded that most of the characters in Scripture are terribly flawed. Um, we see moments of victory. We, you know, we, we, we pick out the highlights, and that's what we teach the kids, these Bible heroes. But if you start really looking at these Bible heroes, they were very much normal people with very real struggles and real issues. And so I was looking for who would be a good person that models intimacy with God. And, and I, I came up with Daniel. Now, um, what do you know about Daniel? If, if, if you're to think about Daniel, most of you immediately say lion's den. Daniel and the lion's den, that's one of those stories every kid knows. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you know about Daniel and the lion's den. You may not believe it, but you know about it, all right? What most of us don't know is that Daniel was actually in his 80s when that happened, all right? It was at the end of a lifetime that was characterized by a closeness and an intimacy with God. Now, some other facts that a lot of people don't know about Daniel. Um, and so Daniel's story, at least what we know in Scripture, started out with him being um, captured and taken away as a slave when Israel was conquered by Babylon. So he was taken away from his family, probably about 13 years old, and carried off into this foreign land, he actually, in only a few years, went from being a slave to being a high-level government official. He served for decades um, 
before Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. And then Daniel not only survived that, but he was elevated to second in command in the new regime. Now that doesn't just happen, all right? People didn't survive those kind of transitions. The, normally those government leaders would have been executed and, and so forth. And, and so Daniel, um, you know, he had this incredible career. Um, we find out later in the book, Daniel was actually visited by the angel Gabriel, the same one who would later appear to Joseph and Mary to tell them about Jesus. And, and Gabriel, this just blows my mind, Gabriel told Daniel that he had a guardian angel and his guardian angel was none other than Michael, the archangel. Okay? Daniel was special. And I believe it's because he lived the life of intimacy with God. Now, let's take a look at some passages here. We're going to look at a couple of, of passages. We're going to start in chapter 1 with verse 3. Um, and Daniel's about 13 years old. And when the book starts, and he's taken away as a slave, he's separated from his family. And Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, he had this interesting strategy. Uh, most of the time when a, a king would conquer another nation, he would kill all the men, you know, defeat the soldiers, especially the leaders, and they would enslave the women, and that way they didn't have to worry about an uprising or a rebellion later on. Nebuchadnezzar had a better strategy. What he would do is he would capture these leaders and especially the promising young men. And so he would take these young men back to Babylon. They'd give them Babylon names. They'd give them Babylon clothes. They'd give them a good place to live. They would feed them well. They would give them a good education, a Babylonian education, and teach them about the Babylonian ways. And then as they were grown, they would send them back to govern those areas they came from. It was a brilliant strategy. And so with that in mind, we read uh, Nebuchadnezzar instructed his highest official, Ashpenaz, to choose royal descendants and members of the ruling class from the Israelites. Good-looking young men without defects, skilled in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, conversant with learning, and capable of serving in the king's palace. Ladies, sound like the kind of guy you'd want to follow? Maybe? All right, so Ashpenaz was to teach them the Chaldean language and its literature. The king assigned these young men daily allotments from his own food and from the royal wine. Ashpenaz was to teach them for three years so that at the end of that time, they could serve before the king. But look what it says in verse 8. But Daniel decided that he wouldn't pollute himself with the king's rations or the royal wine. And he appealed to the chief official in hopes that he wouldn't have to do so. Now, the food that he'd been assigned violated the dietary laws of Israel. It was in conflict to what God had said. But think about this. 13-year-old, away from his family, away from his religion, away from his customs, and he was asked to do something that was in no way illegal. In fact, it was required. But he decided not to pollute himself. He had every possible excuse. And he, he did. He, he could have said, hey, you know, um, I, I'm a victim here. If, if God's rules were so important, then why didn't he protect us in, in, in Jerusalem? Why did he let us get captured? 
I, I can't help it. This is what they provide me. I don't have any say-so in what they feed me. Hey, everybody's doing it. That's old-fashioned laws. You know what? But he said, no. No, I'm not. Daniel chose discipline over indulgence. He chose discipline over indulgence. Now, I remember as a teen hearing this story. I was taught this story. I was encouraged to stand against culture and keep myself pure. But you know as well as I do that that's not just a matter of will. Some of you, you can attest to that because you've tried to will your way out of that addiction or out of that habit or out of that whatever that is, and you keep going back to it. Our will is never going to be strong enough. There has to be something deeper that's motivating us. Now, we'll come back to that, but flip over to chapter 2. We're going to look at another passage here, beginning in verse 10. Um, we're going to look at another key moment in Daniel's life. It takes place about a year later. Now, chapter 1 ends and talks about what happens after the three years, but chapter 2 says it was in the second year. So this is before the end of chapter 1. It's not chronological, um, but... Um, this moment happens in, in chapter 10. What happens is Nebuchadnezzar, the king, um, there is no balance of power in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the law. He does what he wants. And he has this dream. And the dream really, really disturbs him. But like many of us, he wakes up and he's still disturbed, but he can't remember what it was he dreamed. And so he calls all his, his advisors together. And in those days, they recognized that many times dreams actually were God's way of speaking to you. And so he knew this was important. He knew that this was troubling, but he couldn't remember what it was. He called his advisors. He says, here's the deal. I need you to interpret the dream. And they're like, great, tell us the dream. And he goes, I can't. I forgot it. So you tell me what I dreamed and what it meant. Now, if you're thinking that sounds a little unreasonable, it was. And they tell him that. They said, well, king, that's not the way this works. You tell us the dream, we tell you the meaning. That's, you know, that's our job. And the king goes, mm, no, not today it's not. Today your job is to tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And they're like, you're asking us to do something that's impossible. And he says, look, if you really are that good at interpreting dreams, you ought to be able to tell me what it means or what it was. And they make this statement, I love this, um, it, it says here in verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king, no one on earth can do what the king is asking. No king or ruler, no matter how great, has ever asked such a thing of any dream interpreter, enchanter, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is impossible. No one could declare the dream to the king but the gods. We who don't live among mere humans. Now, the king doesn't like their response, so he declares that they're all going to be not just fired, but executed. Like I said, he's the law. He can do whatever he wants. And, and so they, he sends out the word, all the wise men are to be executed. Now, the problem is Daniel and his friends are in this apprentice program, and the law now applies to them. Now, they weren't invited to the party where, you know, they, they weren't invited to interpret or tell the dream, but now the law comes down and says, you're going to die. 
And so, the, you know, the Ariok comes to kill them, and, and look how Daniel responds. It says, Then Daniel, with wisdom and sound judgment, responded to Ariok, the king's chief executioner, who had gone out to kill Babylon's sages. He said to Ariok, the king's royal officer, Why is the king's command so unreasonable? After Ariok explained the situation to Daniel, Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so he could explain the dream's meaning to him. Then Daniel went to his house and explained the situation to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah so that they would ask the God of heaven for help about his mystery in hopes that Daniel and his friends wouldn't die with the rest of Babylon's sages. Now again, Daniel is 14 years old, yet he responds with wisdom and sound judgment. We know by the description of the men that were chosen that he was intelligent and he was capable of learning. But Daniel's initial reaction to this situation was to choose trust over fear. Choose trust over fear. Daniel didn't panic. He asked questions. He didn't try to escape. Instead, he dared to go to the king and ask for more time. He confidently assured the king that he could provide answers where none of the other advisors could. How did Daniel get to be so bold? What gave him the ability to trust so deeply? Where did that wisdom come from? Again, I don't think this was something that just happened in the moment. I believe this is the evidence of something Daniel had, something deeper. Well, let's look at one more passage. Turn to Daniel chapter 6 and verse 4. So a few chapters over, um, and while it's only a few pages in our Bibles, it's actually about 70 years that have passed. Daniel's now an old man. Babylon has fallen to the Medes and the Persians. Darius the Mede is now the ruler, and he's noticed Daniel's superior character and leadership abilities. And Daniel, or Darius plans to elevate Daniel above all other key officers in his organizational structure. Now those other officers weren't happy. And Daniel 6 tells us, as a result, the other officers and the chief administrators tried to find some problems with Daniel's work for the kingdom. Listen to this. But they couldn't find any problem or corruption at all because Daniel was trustworthy. He wasn't guilty of any negligence or corruption. Let that sink in. How many politicians today would survive that test? Forget politicians. How many of us would survive that test? Finally, they come to a conclusion. So these men said, we won't find any fault in Daniel unless we can find something to use against him from his religious practice. In other words, the only way they can get Daniel to do something wrong is if they can create a conflict between the law and his devotion to God. So they approached Darius with a plan. They'll make praying to any God other than Darius against the law for 30 days. Now, I grew up hearing this story, and I always thought, man, what an arrogant jerk Darius must have been. 
You know, this, this whole thing, oh, they can only worship you. Ooh. You know, but I don't think that's what was going on here. It was actually not that unusual when the Medes and the Persians would conquer a land, often what they would do is they would put a halt on all religious activities so that they could assess which ones would be a threat to them and which ones wouldn't. And so this, this was not an unusual thing that they proposed to Daniel. And therefore, Daniel didn't even think twice about it. It made perfect sense. We're newly conquered here. We'll, we'll make that the law. Okay? So they do. And they, they put in that 30-day window. And it says, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went to his house. Now his upper room had open windows that faced Jerusalem. Daniel knelt down, prayed, and praised his God three times that day, just like he always did. Just then, these men, all ganged together, came upon Daniel praying and seeking mercy from his God. Their plan worked. Daniel did what they knew he would do. He did what he always did. He knelt down, windows open, facing Jerusalem, and he prayed. Listen, Daniel knew what he was doing. He knew that the law had been signed. He knew what the penalty was. That was the lion's den. But that didn't matter because he chose the relationship over all else. The relationship was what mattered. Keep in mind that Daniel has seen God's faithfulness all his life. God blessed his obedience in, the, in chapter 1. God answered his prayers in chapter 2. God saw, uh, he saw God protect his friends from a fiery furnace in chapter 3. He saw God humble the arrogant Nebuchadnezzar and soften his heart in chapter 4. And these are just the things we know about. He survived the overthrow of an empire. And this is just another day at the office. I believe that he had the same attitudes his friends had when they faced Nebuchadnezzar's threats. We know that God is able to deliver us. But whether he does or not, we will not bow down to your idol. And Daniel wasn't about to stop praying to his God. Again, this is evidence that he had something special. And what I believe he had was that intimate relationship with God. These things aren't things we will. These things come out of, they spring out of an intimate relationship with God. When we have that closeness with God, it's so much easier to do these things. Now, let's break this down a little, um, because Daniel's intimacy with God shows up as these three things, the the discipline over indulgence, trust over fear, relationship over all else. But but making these choices isn't just a matter of willpower. That's something deeper. Let's actually look at some underlying core values because there's things under the surface here that produce these kind of church these kind of choices they're truths that we believe to our core they're grounded in our subconscious minds they guide our thinking even before we have the thought and each of these choices has at least three underlying core values and i'll cover these quickly um for example i'm not going to choose discipline over indulgence until i know that i'm not my own I belong to God. 
All right? Daniel knew this. It didn't matter whether his parents were around or not. It didn't matter if he was in Babylon. It didn't matter whether it was legal or not. He belonged to God. And so do we. Now, and not only that, but God alone gets to set the standards. God gets to set, not me, not my parents, not my grandparents, not my workplace, not culture, God. Nebuchadnezzar tried to set the standard for Daniel, but Daniel knew better. He wasn't going to pollute himself by violating the standards that God had set. Daniel also uh, knew that um, circumstances don't change what's right or wrong. It wasn't easy for Daniel. Keep in mind, he was ripped from his family and carried off to a foreign land. His nation had been conquered. He was now a slave. He was living in Babylon. He was, he was being taught the Babylonian ways and being served Babylonian foods. He couldn't help where he was or what had been done to him. The king had mandated the food. He didn't have a choice. But he chose anyway. He chose what was right, and the circumstances didn't matter. How often do we use our circumstances as an excuse to do what we know is wrong? I can't help it. This is the way I am. I don't have a choice. Yes. Yes, we do. And then there's trust over fear. See, this one's a little bit different because fear is an emotion. It's something that we feel. Fear is actually something that God designed in us. It's something He put in us for a purpose to help protect us. So we can't choose not to feel afraid. But we can choose to trust God rather than be paralyzed by fear. And that depends on us knowing in the depths of our soul that God is always good. God is, we have to know that. We have to know that God is always good. And the world may be falling apart. That doesn't mean that God's not good. Things may, terrible things may happen, but that doesn't mean God is not good. God is still good, and we have to know that. We have to hold on to that with all that we are. Now, that's not true if you follow other religions. Right? The gods of other religions, they have fears and whims and flaws. They're, they're like people with more power. They're inconsistent. And, and those traditions teach that mankind was created as almost like toys for the gods to play with. That's not our God. Our God never changes. He's always good and always just. And He created mankind to have a relationship with Him. When mankind was hopelessly lost, God made a way to redeem him. So God is God's not just good, but God's also omnipotent. Nothing is beyond the scope of God's power. We have to know that. That there is nothing, and we sang about that this morning. There's nothing God can't do. God of revival, we sang, you know, the, there's no mountain you can't move, no, no wall you can't tear down. There is nothing that God can't do. This is why Daniel could approach the king so confidently. This is why he can come in there and say what the others couldn't say. I can tell you what you dreamed. And when he went back in to tell the king, he says, you know what? I can't tell you what you dreamed, but there's a God who can. 
and He has revealed that to you. We have to know that God can do anything. Nothing's beyond His power. There's no situation too hopeless, no problem that's too big, and there's no person too lost that God can't redeem them. Now, while both of those are true, both are important, there's also a third underlying core value that you have to have if you're going to have trust over fear, and that's this. God knows what's best. I don't. It's what I loved about that last song. It's like, okay, God, I'm, I'm laying it down here. You do what's best. You do what you want to. We don't get to tell God what we want Him to do. We have to trust Him. That was the key, to the, the, the key to the attitude is God can, but even if He doesn't, it's knowing that He knows what's best. Daniel was able to see past the captivity, past the separation from his family and the slavery, and trust God's judgment. Do you trust God? Do you trust? Yes, but no, no. Do you trust God? So what principles lead us to choose the relationship over all else? Well, first, there's an understanding that my choices reflect my true values. Understand that the things that we choose show what we really believe, what we really value. Those seeking to get rid of Daniel knew what mattered to him. They'd seen it and how he lived. And the same is true for us. Listen, we can be really good at deceiving ourselves, but we're not that good at deceiving others. People see the choices we make. They know what really matters. And it doesn't matter what we say. We can say we love Jesus all the time. We can say we want to be followers of Him. But do our choices reflect that? Does our choice of how we spend our time and money show that God is most important to us? Our choices to deny ourselves and submit to God, does that declare that we really, really value that relationship? Another requirement uh, is the understanding that the closer I am to someone, the more I become like them. Uh, it's, it's so funny. Debbie and I have been married for a long time. Um, it'll be 32 years, no, 33 years this next January. And... Um, it's so funny because periodically something will happen and, and I will do things that I would never have done 33 years ago, but Debbie would have, you know, or she'll do something that I would have done 33 years ago and we've become more like each other. And the closer we get, the more we become like each other. That's true in our relationship with God. The closer we get to him, the more we become like him. And the only way we become like him is to be closer to him. The third thing here, the third underlying principle is that my relationship with God is worth any cost. There is nothing worth more. Listen to me, not comfort, not wealth, not safety, not security, not power, not influence, not friendships, not even family. Nothing is more important than our relationship to God. It is priceless. And Daniel knew this. But you know what? We know something that Daniel didn't know. We know what it cost him. 
God's purpose, listen, God's purpose for salvation, this is going to wreck some of you. God's purpose for salvation was not so that we could escape hell or go to heaven when we die. That is not why Jesus died. God's purpose for salvation, the reason he sent his son to die, is because God wants that intimate relationship with us. It's about relationship. It always has been. And God says, my relationship with you is worth any cost, even my own son. So how do we establish these core values? Do these values produce intimacy with God, or are they the result of intimacy with God? And I think it's both. I think that, that it's, they're connected I think that intimacy with God is, you know, it's a very close, familiar, and deeply personal relationship formed over a long period of time. These things, sometimes we make choices, and sometimes they're small choices, but they lead us into a deeper relationship with God, and then that causes us to to start understanding these principles. But there are some things, some practical, I want to give you some practical steps or, or, or ideas here. First of all, Here's, here's what, what I know. Intimacy with God is sparked when we see His value. It starts when we see His value. When we understand that He loved us. When we reflect on who He is, His character, His power, His wisdom. When we begin to understand how incredible God is, we begin to value Him. When we, when we see that, that He desires that relationship with us and paid dearly to make it possible, that value grows even more. And as we experience His faithfulness, He becomes more and more valuable to us. It starts there. But it's not just value. God's not just not a trophy. He's not something we lock up in a safe or put out on display. Intimacy with God is a relationship, and it's fueled when we pursue His presence. Now, we understand God is everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to get away from God, but that doesn't, that's not the same as pursuing His presence. If you, when you think about those first days when you were in love and you couldn't wait to be with that person, and you orchestrated your calendar so that you could be with that person, and you, you rearranged your money priorities so that you could do things with that person or for that person, that's pursuing that relationship. And that's how we've got to, we've got to think about our relationship with God. We need to desire to be with Him, not just to see Him do things for us, not just to see Him take care of of problems or or, or remove obstacles, but to be with Him. Long conversations, shared experiences, exchanging thoughts and ideas, sitting together in in the quiet, sometimes doing nothing, just being together. We need to pursue God that way. And then finally, intimacy with God is forged when we depend on His faithfulness. Let me tell you something. You don't get intimacy without trials and hardships. That person or even God can bless you and they can make you feel good and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't give you the intimacy that going through something together gives you. 
when Debbie and I were first married, we actually were on our way home from our honeymoon. Somebody from the church picked us up and was driving us home. And we found out that there was some things going on that um, I was very likely going to lose my job. And, and what we thought was our future was completely up in the air. This is on the way home from our honeymoon. And we began to pray. And we began to seek God together to work through this. And God did. God worked incredibly. That's a long story. I'm not going to tell you now. But the, God worked in an amazing way. And, and that forged us together in those first few weeks of our marriage like nothing else could have. And I'll tell you this, the last five years, 2017 to 2022, were horrendous for us. We experienced so many different trials and hardships all at the same time. But our relationship is so much stronger now than we could have ever imagined because we went through that together. And that's what God does. Sometimes, sometimes he removes the threat and he removes the obstacle. But sometimes he goes with us into the furnace. Sometimes he goes with us into the lion's den. Sometimes he takes us through those trials and hardships because he's wanting to forge that intimacy with him that there is no other way to forge. Listen, I... I'm going to say this because God said to say this, and I don't know who I'm saying it to, but some of you are praying for God to take away the very thing that he wants to use to forge your intimacy with him. You need to turn it over to him and say, okay, I trust you. You're good. Let's do this together. That's what intimacy is. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good. You're so good, so consistent, so loving. Forgive us, Lord, when we think we've figured it out. Help us just to trust you. Help us to, to seek you, to pursue you, to, to let you be God. And uh, Father, to, to be in your presence. Lord, I just pray today that you would help us respond as we need to respond. Father, help us to, to lay down what we need to lay down and to, uh, to, to decide what we need to decide. But Father, may we truly take another step toward intimacy with you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Believer's Church of Johnson City Podcast. Make sure you join us again next week. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for all the latest news and information about Believer's Church. God bless and have a great day.